Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon podcast from First United Methodist Church and of our campus in Lexington, Kentucky. It is our prayer that as you listen today, you will be encouraged, challenged, and equipped to be all God has for you. We invite you to join us for worship on Sunday mornings at either 8.30 or 11 o'clock a.m. at our Todd's Road campus near the Hamburg area of Lexington. And now, may you be blessed as we give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 15, verses 1 through 10. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. So Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? Won't he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go to search for the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he will joyfully carry it home on his shoulders. When he arrives, he will call together his friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. In the same way, there is more joy in heaven over a lost sinner who repents and returns to God than over 99 others who are righteous and haven't strayed away. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she will call in her friends and neighbors and say, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost coin. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels when even one sinner repents. This is the word of God for the people of God. In the evening, I went very unwillingly, unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone, for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine and saved me from the law of sin and death. This is John Wesley in his journal, entry May 24th, 1738. Most Methodists and Wesleyan scholars believe that it was uh, this moment that was the beginning of the Methodist movement, a movement and a revival um, that would sweep across Britain first and impact that little island nation in a dozen ways. It created, for instance, a middle class. Did you know that? created the first middle class. It disrupted an additional civil war. It, it, it brought to a dead state organized religion or religious service, and it infused it with this creative energy of God. It was called methodical. It was called messy. It was even called detestable at times. Too touchy-feely. In America, the Wesley movement of Methodism became this new denomination, and in the 19th century, it was the largest denomination in the United States. Presidents, members of both the Senate and and Congress, governors, all areas of government were represented at one time or another by Methodists. Until the revivals of the 1950s and the 60s, Methodism, uh, or one of its offshoots, was responsible for the majority of congregational worship in this country. 
something's happened in that time. Um, it was this little society meeting in Aldersgate uh, as someone read a preface to a commentary. How exciting is that? I've read Luther's preface to the Epistle of Romans. Whoa. And in this moment, John Wesley, which he, he reluctantly went to, has this encounter with God that changes him, and, it's, and, and it, it puts this fire underneath this movement that would, would awaken the entire world, at least the Western world. Wesley already had a structure. Wesley already had a sound theology. What he didn't have was an assurance. He didn't have a spirituality that matched his theology. He, he hadn't had an experience of God's grace and God's love for himself. He, he wanted to know God, but he was pretty positive that, that God was, an only, was only an angry God and Wesley would never be able to measure up. And it was in that Aldersgate room that something changed. In fact, in that room, he, had, he came up with these three rules for the basis of the entire movement coming out of Aldersgate. Do you know what they are? Do no harm, do good, and stay in love with God. Those are the first three rules of the people called Methodist. Do no harm, do good, stay in love with God. He would later say, in terms of doing good, do all the good you can by all the means you can and all the ways you can and all the places you can and all the times you can to all the people as you, as you can as long as ever you can. Can, 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 can. Can, can. For someone so methodical in his approach to God and doing church, um, his real thought process wasn't really that hard. Did you know that Wesley set up his communities in such a way that if you didn't go to your weekly band gathering, your small group of five to six people for regular accountability and confession and your tithing, that you couldn't go to church on Sunday morning? Most of us like, yes, wouldn't have to go, get a pass, not in Wesley's day. You needed a ticket to come into church for what we do here. If you didn't go to your weekly get band meeting, you didn't get it. That's devotion, man. That's, that's a love for the, the movement of God that is, um, in, in my vocabulary, I can only think of one word, and that's Wow. The movement of Methodism, this awareness of God's grace uh, that, that highlighted and joined personal holiness and social holiness into this one cohesive unit may have gotten its legs at Aldersgate, what we, we remember today on Aldersgate Sunday. But the foundations were actually laid a whole lot earlier than that. Um, uh, the, the, long before he, he failed at his missionary trip to Georgia, uh, long before he met this group of Moravians in Germany, and long before he started his first gathering of students at Oxford, uh, long before he was ordained as an Anglican priest, Wesley had this launching pad um, in the home. Um, it's been reported that um, every day in the tiny rural village of Epworth, you could pass by the parsonage of the tiny little church there and hear absolute silence for over two hours. Now, why is that a miracle? Well, because if you were to walk up and peer into the windows, you would still see children, as many as nine, running around, reading, writing, doing chores. You might see a baby or a toddler napping. You might see some action, but you would hear nothing. 
you would also see, and you peered through that window, a woman sitting in the middle of the living space with what appeared to be a tablecloth pulled over her head. That was Susanna Wesley. And she did that every single day. Now, if you had nine children, you might want to pull a tablecloth over your head and escape a little while too, right? That's not what she was doing. Susanna Wesley spent two hours every day in prayer and in scripture. And when she put that tablecloth, she was entering into her tent of meeting and no one was to disturb her. From an early age, Susanna Annesley Wesley had decided not to fret away her days, but to spend as much time in prayer and study as she did in leisure and in entertainment. As much time as she spent on Netflix, she spent in prayer. Um, she was the youngest child in a family of 19. <laughs> Her father was a highly educated and highly prominent minister in London. Susanna learned early what it took to manage a household and to pursue on her own an education. She didn't go to school. She learned how to read. She learned how to write. She learned how to pursue uh, education in that home. Uh, she married Samuel Wesley in, 19, uh, in, uh, in 1768 when she was 19 years old. Samuel was an Anglican minister and he moved his new wife to the city, the village of Epworth, where he ministered off and on for 39 years. Whew, that's a long appointment. <laughs> 39 years. Samuel was an interesting character. He loved God, but he was a whole lot of mess. Uh, he was terrible with money. He ended up uh, in debtor's prison. He thought of himself as an intellectual, but he lived with a bunch of rural farmers. Um, they didn't like him. They, he was too heady. Uh, at least once, men from the village tried to burn down the parsonage with them in it. At least once, possibly twice. Samuel was a political mess, too. Uh, he was a loyal supporter of William, the son-in-law of King James, which caused problems in the village as well as in the home. Because at one point, when Samuel offered a prayer for King William, Susanna, who was loyal to the deposed King James, refused to say amen at the end. Samuel was so frustrated at the stubbornness of his wife that he stated, and I quote, Suki, which was his nickname for her, we must part ways, for if we have two kings, then we must have two beds. And Susanna's response was, if I'm wrong, I'll apologize, but since I'm not, I won't. <laughs> so you know what Samuel did? He moved out of the house. But he returned five months later, and apparently they reconciled because nine months after that, little John was born. John was one of 19 children that Samuel and Susanna had. Ten of those children died in childbirth. Two sets of twins. While Samuel, uh, with Samuel being a, a city boy intellectual and often gone into the village to, to work on church things or on this book of, this, this commentary in the book of Job, Susanna was left to care for the home, to educate her children. And one of her rules that she held very firmly was that all of her children, including the girls, would learn to read before they would do a single chore in the house. And they all learned to read before they were five years old. Um, she also had a rule that chores were done prior to your day of schooling, which took part in two sections. From nine to noon, you did schooling, and then from two to five, you did schooling, which meant your chores were done before or after. In between, that was something different. 
she also had uh, this routine where she would devote one hour to each child um, throughout the course of the week in the evenings. Nine children, she had to set up a routine so that the other eight were cared for while that nine was getting one hour, a devoted time, where they spent time talking, listening, praying, and encouraging. Um, at one point, Samuel went away for an extended period of time, and he had a guest preacher serve in the pulpit, and, and a man by the name of Mr. Inman. And apparently, he was boring, he was tired, and he was also really snarky to the Wesley family. Um, something that, that Susanna wouldn't stand for, and, and even if the, folks did, the, the town folk didn't like him, Susanna then decided that, well, my family's not getting good biblical teaching, so guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to do it on my own. And so Sunday night, she started a Bible study for her children. And no time at all, there were over 200 people gathering for Susanna's Bible studies in the evening. Guess who wasn't happy? Mr. Inman. So he wrote a letter to Samuel and said, hey, you got to do something. So Samuel wrote a letter to Suki and said, hey, you got to stop this. And you know what she said? Nope. She said, God wants God's people to grow, and since Mr. Inman is the only one complaining, I will refuse and I will continue to teach. Don't you just love Susanna? This is the mother of the Methodist movement, and if you've done any study on John and Charles at all, it's easy to see where they got their fire and their tenacity and their stubbornness from. Mama Wesley, she was the driving force behind her boys uh, being ready to learn and to lead and to share Jesus in, in, in a world in need. She had a passion for raising her children, for teaching the gospel, for inviting others into the deepening of their faith, and for reaching out to those in need, even when it meant not doing something for herself. Our district superintendent, uh, Reverend Dr. Yosemar Alvarez, has this saying. He says, uh, we need to sweep the room. Now, at first, when I heard him say this, I thought it was some Cuban reference to Karate Kid, you know, sweep the leg, Johnny. But then he took me to that passage that I read just a minute ago. A shepherd and a widow push aside everything to go look for the lost. And that crowd, hey, there's one sheep lost. You got 99, what are you going to do? Most of the time, nothing. One sheep. We can get another sheep. Not that shepherd. Poor woman, the widow, she loses a coin. What's she going to do? She's going to change everything to find it. Shepherd leaves 99 saved sheep because one lost sheep is valuable to him. It, 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 it's, its life matters. The widow loses a coin. She sweeps everything in the house, turns it upside down to find it. And when the shepherd and the widow find what was lost, what happens? They throw a party. Uh, uh, the, the idea of those parties is it probably costs more than the sheep and the coin that was lost in the first place. Jesus said that these earlier parables were example of how the father views his children. When one is lost... The searching gets underway. And when one is found, all of heaven breaks out into a party. Jesus' mission, thus the mission of his followers, was to be on the lookout, to be a part of this rescue party for the lost coins and the lost sheep of the Father's house. I mentioned last week that we are a saved and sent people. It's easy to respond to grace and be a saved person. It's a whole other thing to be a person of grace. A person of peace who, who leaves the confines of our sanctuary and is sent and this understanding that we have the presence of God living inside of us to go and find lost sheep and lost coins in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces. 
that's, that's the mission. That's the, the point of hearing the good news. It's to get it out, to let it rip all over the place and to let it affect everywhere that we go, every aspect of our life. It doesn't mean that we bullhorn it, standing on some corner shouting out awfulness. If that's your idea of evangelism, can we please just bury it? Can we please just give it the death that it deserves and needs to have? Because that's not it. Susanna Wesley would say, help me, Lord, to remember um, that religion is not to be confined, confined to the church, which she meant by, by the building. Nor should it be exercised only in prayer and meditation, but that everywhere I am in thy presence. That's religion. That's the following of God. Out tending your garden. That's religion. That's living in the, the presence of God. You're at Kroger and someone cuts in front of you to get their cart and their gallon of milk before you have frozen ice cream dripping all over the place. That's an opportunity for your religion. Now, religion's a bad word in our society, isn't it? It wasn't for Susanna. Religion was just the way in which you show your love of God. Now, this woman who spent two hours each day under a tablecloth in prayer and meditation, was fully convinced that it was moments with their children, husband, community, even when they were burning down the family home, that God's presence was wooing her to share Jesus' love. She'd say, there are two things about the gospel, believe it and behave it. That's someone who's living her story. Charles had his Aldersgate moment a couple days before John. John had his, May 24th. They would together go on to lead this movement that went searching for lost sheep and lost coins. We read Charles, we, we sang Charles's uh, hymn, that opening, Oh, for a thousand tongues. That was his response to his, Oh, that I had a thousand tongues to say, Thank you, God, for warming my heart, telling me of your love. John and Charles would lower themselves to places where they would leave sanctuaries and gilded church halls and share Jesus on the fields or in roadways and byways and taverns and bars. Most of Charles's songs that came from melodies that were sung in bars. I love that. We sing bar songs in church. We got friends in low places is the next one, I think. John and Charles began a movement of sweeping the room and throwing parties said last week it was time that we maybe it was time that we encounter Jesus again let me add this Sunday maybe it's time we take this encounter this good news we realize that we have a calling to share it good news is only good news if it gets out if you're content with your Christian walk sitting right here in your chair um, you're going to get really tired of me or any other pastor because our job is to equip you to get out and to share that with everybody you encounter and everybody you meet. Good news is only good news if it's shared. To get out of the walls, find lost sheep, coins of the Father's house. Notice I didn't say skip church. Well, the preacher said I don't have to go to church on Sundays. I'm supposed to get out. No, 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 no. Take it outside implies that we're still coming, that we're still growing, that we're still being challenged as a family in this place, in a community, seeking, knowing, experiencing God's love. We spend time under the tablecloth, so to speak, as a cor corporate community, hopefully also individually throughout the week. But we do so in order to step up, to step out, and to get going. So on this Aldersgate Sunday, 
on this day that we remember Wesley uh, his, with the preface of Romans. Yeah, as we move from that moment, uh, as we, we remember this thing that Wesley went through, um, we have an interesting season in the life of the church and the life of this country. We're more divided today than we've ever been in my life, lifehood. Talk to people older than me and they say, yeah, it's pretty much reminds us of the Vietnam days of the division that was in our culture at that point. Um, we're, pretty, we're pretty sick, aren't we? We're pretty hurting. And, and yet, um, the beautiful thing is, is that um, we as a church are the place where we can be united, even when we disagree. Probably especially when we disagree. Because this is a place where we are invited to know the strangely warming affection of God's heart for you and for I. We don't have to be right. Thank God. We get to be righteous. So whether you're on the left or whether you're on the right or whether you're in the middle going, I wish you two would both just shut up. I want to invite you to remember that when we come here, um, all that stuff is secondary. Important, yes. But it's secondary. It's secondary. When we come and we feast at this table, when we, we take bread and we dip it in the cup, we are realizing that, yes, there are things that, that divide us, that, that we are different about, that we disagree over. But there is one who invites us to rise above those disagreements and to know his love in a great way. There, there are people who can be a Trump supporter and a Trump hater in this room. Not hater, that's the wrong word. There, there are people in this room who come to this table who can be uh, uh, um, progressive or conservative. That's okay. There are people in this room um, who decide to go, okay, how am I going to share the love of Jesus in a practical way? What's my next right thing today? And that begins with a heart that's been strangely warmed. And so this morning I ask you, has your heart been warmed? Can you rise above all that other junk? If not, when you come to the table this morning, I just ask you to invite yourself to pray one thing. Jesus, come and let me know your love. Lord, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for the opportunity that we have to share as a family, as brothers and sisters. We thank you for the opportunity to come to your table to know your love. We thank you for uh, John Wesley, the mess that he was. We thank you for Samuel and Susanna and the mess they were and yet the structure they gave and the love of, of God they gave to their children. And I pray, God, this morning that we will not have just heard a story, but we will maybe have been inspired by this and we might go out and look for the lost coins and the lost sheep and the, the orphans and the people who, who need your love. Lord, my heart this week has been broken for the divides and the posturing and the politicking that we do inside the church and outside the church. So, Jesus, I pray this morning that you would pour your spirit on this Alders Gate weekend, on this Memorial Day weekend, on your people. And you would remind us who we really are and to whom we really belong. Lord, it was at your table 
that you gave bread and you gave cup. Broken and poured out for us. So Lord, as we remember this morning, I ask that you would pour your spirit on each and every one of us gathered in this room to the point of overflowing. Pour your spirit on bread and cup. Jesus, be with us in this meal. The presence of your spirit in such a way that we are forever changed. Strangely warm our hearts. Start a new movement, Lord, with this group of Methodists. As we come out from underneath the, the tent of meeting this morning, release us. Help us to be one as you and the Father are one. Help us to be one in ministry and service and word and in deed even. Till that day when we feast at your heavenly banquet. Our honor and glory is yours now and forever, most high and holy God, Father, Son, and Spirit. It's in your name that we offer this prayer.